This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Carlson, jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, yes. Carlson, världens bästa Welcome everybody Carlson. to another episode of the Keep It Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world. Hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me is the fantasy hockey robot, Brian Com. Hey, Elon, what a big episode we have today. The highly anticipated announcement that we announced last week, it's coming. <laughs> yes, this episode is going to be very abnormal and unusual because I don't think we're going to be talking about many players, maybe just to give examples of things. But the goal for today is to discuss how to make the perfect hockey pool, or at least in our opinion. So we're going to be going over all the different things, or as many as we can, as many as we can think of, of decisions you have to make when designing a hockey pool. So anyone out there that's maybe thinking of starting a pool with their friends or something, this will be the episode to listen to, to hear all the different options you have and Brian in my opinion of which way we think is better to make a better pool there's a lot of nuance to it and we'll get to it as we go and then like you said as far as the announcement goes at the end of the episode we are going to drop our pool and explain everything about the keeping Carlson patron pool but you don't need to be a patron to enjoy this episode you just need to be a listener of keeping Carlson which you are by virtue of you having me talking to you right now and we are going to get right into how to design the perfect hockey pool Brian do you have anything you want to say before we get started well, we've had a lot of requests over the last couple years of doing this show for like a how to play fantasy hockey kind of episode, like the basics if you're just trying to get into it. So that's what this episode can double for as well with us both explaining all your different options when you're designing a pool and then saying how we would do it and how we will do it for the ultimate Keeping Carlson Keeper fantasy pool that has yet to have a more catchy name or something that rolls better off the tongue. We'll get to that. Yeah, you could write in and let us know. But okay, Brian, I guess let's just start at the beginning. Let's say you're sitting down with your friends. You're like, okay, let's make a hockey pool. We got a group here. We like hockey. We like fantasy hockey. We want to get started with something. There's a lot of decisions to be made, right? About the format, about more complicated things like keepers and rosters. And so let's just start with the format. And I think this is a very important thing because this is going to determine what type of pool it's going to be, like what type of experience people are going to be having on a daily, weekly, or season basis. So when I'm talking about format, I'm talking about whether you want to just count up your points from day one to the end of the season and see who wins, or if you want to do something a bit more complicated like head-to-head matchups. So let's start with just counting up the points. I don't know how much there is to get into with that, but Brian, what would you say are the pros and cons of doing a pool like that? 
Well, it's the simplest, right? If you want to just jump into a pool and Elon, like back, I don't know, how long ago now? Like 15 years ago, we were in a pool together and it was a points only pool. I think just because there were no like more sophisticated point tracking systems to help us sort it out at that time. But points only is really just my players are going to score more points than your players. And you can also weight how many points each sort of thing is worth. Like goals are weighted more heavily than assists or what have you. But points only is generally just based on goals and assists. And that's it. Right. Yeah. And I remember actually way back in the day, we would just draft our teams. That would be that. Then at the end of the season, we'd have to look in the Ottawa Scissors in newspaper to see the scoring leaders for each team and then add up everyone's points. Uh, Things have come a long way in terms of fantasy hockey platforms. But yeah, I remember having a points only pool was also very frustrating because it pretty much came down to who had the fewest injuries during the year because we didn't have anything in terms of an IR or dropping players for hot free agents. Nothing like that. It was totally straight up. And yeah, that's the most basic type of pool. And obviously, like you said, the benefit is that it's simple. But the disadvantages are pretty obvious. It's just not very complex. You kind of draft and then you're done. It doesn't require any involvement. Not that fun. Yeah, if you're setting up like a pool for your office or your social sports team or whatever, you'll probably go points only. It's the lowest maintenance and has the lowest barrier to entry. Anybody can do it and anybody can win. So that's a positive and maybe a negative at the same time. It's probably the least popular pool amongst our listeners. So we might as well just move on to another type of pool that I think gets the short end of the stick a lot. And I'd be curious to hear what more people think. Of course, while you're listening, you can tweet at us at Keeping Carlson and tell us what you think about what we're saying. But I think Roto is kind of underrated. And Roto, of course, is short for rotisserie scoring. And in rotisserie scoring, how it works is there are several categories in your pool. And in each category, you have a ranking, you know, relative to what everybody else in your pool is doing. So if there are 12 teams in your pool, you're going to be ranked one through 12 in each separate category. And depending on how well you're ranked, you'll receive a certain amount of points. And that's it. So If you are the best team in your 12-team league in goal scoring, you will have 12 points for that, and you'll just hang on to those 12 points. It's sort of static until you fall down the ladder or somebody passes you, whatever. If you have the second most goals, you'll have 11 points for that. If you have the third most goals, you'll have 10 points, and so on, so on, down the ladder. And your score is calculated by figuring out how many points you get for where you rank in each category, putting it all together, and comparing it to how the rest of your league is doing. So it's a real balance sort of issue. You know, if you're first in a few categories, but last in a bunch of others, so you're getting 12 points for a few times, and then one point, the rest, it's not going to go so well for you. Okay, so since you're talking about rotisserie format, I guess we're now into the types of formats where there's going to be more activity. So sort of underlying, once you're getting into a more complicated format like that, We're assuming now that we're using a platform where there's free agents and things like that, Brian, or can you have a rotisserie format just with drafting? I guess you can. Nothing would stop you, but why would you do that? Yeah, especially when there's so many sites ready to handle those duties for you. I mean, the smaller free sites generally won't offer this sort of functionality, like office pools or pickup hockey, but the more major fantasy platforms will have it. And there is more player movement. You're going to want to make trades, you're going to want to look at free agents, and you're going to want to find ways to increase your ranking across the board throughout the season in every category without doing too much damage to any other category as you do it. So like I said, it's a real balance thing. I think like if you're looking for fairness, this is probably one of the fairer 
pools to be in. I mean, forget injuries because that's always sort of unfair and difficult to to handle and to control for. But if you're just looking for somebody competing to have the best team in a fantasy format, I think this format lends itself really well. Luck is not a huge factor at all. And sort of like having a very well-rounded and well-considered team will take you far. The downside to Roto, and it's a really big one and the reason I actually stopped using it several years ago, is that once the draft is over and like say the next two months pass, lots of things already seem decided. I think there are higher rates of attrition in Roto pools than there are in say points only or head-to-head pools because once you get behind, it feels like you are so far behind and the mountain is so high that you need to climb that you're just kind of like, well, not going to happen for me this year. And of course, that makes it a lot less fun for the people who are contending in the top half of the pool when the other half of the pool is inactive. Okay, (laughs) lots of interesting stuff there. So first of all, you said that there's more attrition in Roto than even in points only. I feel like it would be the same problem, right? Yeah, I guess in points only, it's such low maintenance that you don't notice the attrition. So maybe you can't really measure it because if somebody drops out of a points only league, you won't really know it. So good point. Maybe I should compare more directly to head to head. Yeah, I guess you notice because they're not participating in the trash talk anymore. <laughs> but yeah, I guess when we're talking about Roto, I guess let's let's give it something to contrast it to. So yeah, the two most popular formats are Roto and head to head, which we're going to get to right now. And I think you brought up some good points also in terms of fairness. And that's going to become kind of like a metric or something that we're going to have to trade off against when we're comparing different things. Because like fairness is really important in your pool, but there's other things that are important such as fun and gamesmanship and things like that. And sometimes those things are going to be at odds. And we'll get to that now. So when we talk about head-to-head as a contrary option to Roto and head-to-head, instead of keeping track for the whole season, we're going to every week, let's say, you have a matchup against someone. And then at the end of that matchup, there's a score for that matchup. And either you're going to score it as, you know, you won or lost the matchup and you get one point towards the standings and the loser gets zero. Or if you're doing it with categories, maybe you won 10 out of the 15. And we'll get to that soon but either way you have your like score from the matchup and then next week you start a brand new matchup and you don't keep track of like how many goals you have overall and how many assists you're just keeping track of how you've done each week right so the deck is cleared from week to week with you and your competition and if you're last in your league you can beat the first place team any given week and start climbing up the ladder in roto it's not as flexible. You're not able to just, you know, start beating other teams. And of course, it's hard in head-to-head. If you're last place, you're last place for a reason, and it doesn't grant you any special powers till you know, pluck the player you want and put him right on your team. However, there is a bit more wiggle room, and especially with categories in play. Elon, you were talking about gamesmanship. This is where that can come into play. It's not just straight up, well, my team is better than yours. You can manage your team in a way that gets you a slight edge over your opponent by focusing on a couple certain categories. And Elon, we talked about this a lot on the show, you know, in all of our strategy discussions. It's like, well, you know, you can load up on goals and assists and leave penalty minutes out of it because that's just one category. And it's less likely that somebody helping you in penalty minutes is going to help you in any of the other categories you have. So sometimes we suggest people just throw the penalty minutes category or throw the plus minus category and focus on winning the ones that we think are more important to long-term success. Right. But the nice thing also about head-to-head is that you don't have to worry about long-term. Maybe you could just focus on each matchup, depending what your strategy is. But theoretically, you could just think, for each matchup, hmm, maybe at the bottom of my roster where I have the players that I could pick up and drop, maybe let me see what my opponent has 
and then make decisions based on what do I need to do this week to beat my opponent, as opposed to when you're in a roto league, you're just thinking long-term the whole time. Plus, I like what you said about if you're in last place, you could still beat the winner, even if you've done horribly all year and you're like out of the playoffs, which we'll get to soon, discussing how to organize playoffs. But even if you're in last place, you can still play the spoiler. You could still win a matchup. There's still something to play for to keep you engaged if you want to be throughout the whole fantasy hockey season, as opposed to just kind of being like, well, I guess I've lost now. There's nothing really left to keep track of. You mentioned making a lot of ads and drops in a single week in a head-to-head league. And that's another thing that a head-to-head league has that Roto League doesn't, which is unlimited games played from your team. So looking at a schedule of a team is a whole other aspect of fantasy hockey strategy. And it's something that's not really in the cards for Roto, although you could try and figure out whose opponents will be weaker over a given stretch. But Roto has set limits because it's over the course of the whole season. And if you're just grabbing guys, you know, every day who are playing and dropping the guys who have nights off, then you'll have more games played. And that wouldn't be fair in your ranking for all the categories. So there are usually limits per roster spot. So Every roster spot you have probably has an 82-game limit, or sometimes it's done by position, so you have, you know, a 164-game limit for your defenseman, and how you get those 164 games is up to you, but you can't go beyond that. So you can actually hit that, like, halfway or three-quarters of the way through the season and then be done head-to-head every week. You start from scratch, brand new. You can fit in as many games as you want for your team to play as long as you're okay with dropping guys along the way to make it happen. Right, yeah, okay. And we'll definitely be discussing soon. (laughs) I guess a lot of this episode will be, oh yeah, and we'll get to that soon. But yeah, so we'll talk about, you know, picking up people and dropping them, the whole free agent market. We'll get to that soon. Let's get to the nitty-gritty now before we move on. Let's decide what do we like better. So of the two options, a rotisserie league or a head-to-head league, I think it's kind of clear from what we've been saying and how you said that you stopped doing a rotisserie league a while ago, but I think head-to-head is so much fun. It's pretty much what our podcast is about, right? That's why we put our podcast out every Sunday morning during the regular season. It's because we want to talk about how the previous week went, any moves we might want to make for that Sunday night. Like, it's fun. You have... Also, I really love in Head to Head how every Sunday, assuming it's a weekly league that ends on Sundays, every Sunday it's like you're in the playoffs. It's like these games matter so much because they're going to determine whether or not you won or lost your week. You don't get that excitement in Roto until I guess the actual last couple of weeks of the year if it's a close league, which it often isn't. Yeah, usually it's like a few teams at the top and then the rest are out of contention. And there is like a lot of jockeying for position, you know, you might want to try and target one category to grow in that'll also hurt the people who you are contending with. But overall, I think head to head is the more fun, the more inclusive format too. And it's just like the way the NHL works, right? You have an opponent every night, even the worst teams have a chance to win any given moment. And so can you in a head to head pool. And I guess the one thing that Roto has over head-to-head is the fairness. Like you said, there is something to be said for the fact that with head-to-head, you can have some bad luck. You could just happen to have the best team, but always get unlucky in your matchups. And you're always against an opponent who's having their best week ever. And even though in total you have, let's say, the most goals, the most assists, the most whatever in your whole league, you still might not be in first place. That's not going to happen with Roto, since that's the whole point, is to have the most of these categories. So maybe you could say rotisserie is more fair, but I think Brian and I have come down to the conclusion that head-to-head is more fun, and it's not so unfair, so I think it's 
the clear winner. In our opinions, obviously, tweet at us if you think differently. Yeah, rotisserie is super cumulative, and a lot of people would think that makes it, like, the true way to compete, and totally fair, but for us, head-to-head is the way to go. One sometimes forgotten feature of head-to-head is that rivalries are created, like, you are against another team And you might face that team two or three or four times in a season, depending on how big your pool is. And that can get pretty serious, especially if you know the people. Like, I have felt angry at people who I have no idea who they are. They just have, like, their fantasy hockey team name just because I know they're ahead of me in the standings and I need to beat them. There's a whole new sort of chemistry mechanic that goes on there in head-to-head leagues, which makes it more fun. And for trash talk, too, right? Yeah, for sure. It's always fun to trash the person that you're playing and saying, I'm totally going to destroy you this week. But okay, we have lots of things to talk about, so let's move on. Let's say you've decided to do head-to-head. How are you going to score each week? There's two main options there, and we need to get into them. So you could either go by points or by categories. And maybe, Brian, can you just break down what those two options are in like as few words as possible? In a head-to-head points leagues, you usually choose the categories that you want your team scoring points for, but you weight them. So you might say gold is worth two points, an assist is worth one point, a plus or minus is worth plus or minus a quarter of a point, a goalie win is worth four points, and so on. So at the end of the week, you look at how many points your players have earned based on that weighted system. And whichever team has accumulated the most points that week wins the matchup. Right, and they get kind of like a win in the overall standings. And then if you're doing points like this, at the end of the season, you just see who had the most wins, and that's going to give you your overall standings. Right, so after week one, if I beat you, I'll be 1-0, and and you'll be 0-1. And, and there's a way to work a categories head-to-head league the same way, too. Let's say you have nine categories. If I win six and you win three, then I'll just get the one win for the week, and I'll go to 1-0, and and you'll go to 0-1. But there's another way to count wins and losses if you're doing categories. And that's by counting every category as a win and counting all of those for the entire season. So Elon, if I beat you, and this is very likely that I beat you 6-3 in week one, then my record after week one is going to be 6-3 and 0, zero ties, and your record will be 3-6 and 0. And then let's say next week I beat you again, you know, 7-2, to two, then my record will be 13-5-0, and, and you'll be 5-13-0. So you accumulate every win and loss from every category over the course of the season. Right, okay, and just to make sure it's clear, you're saying that when you beat me 6-3, that means that we had nine categories overall, say they're like goals, assists, shots, plus minus, the goalie wins, whatever they are, and then... For each one, we're keeping track of who wins that category for the week, whose team did the best in that individual category. And then, of course, there's a lot of gamesmanship there in deciding which categories you want to focus on and which ones maybe you don't care if you lose that one because you're going to win more overall. You don't really have that with a points league. In a points league, like we were saying, where you're just going to have a weight and at the end of the week, we'll see who had the most weighted points. There, you're just like, how do I get the most points? As opposed to with categories, you have more to think about. And I guess that gets to then the discussion of which one we prefer. And again, I think it's going to come down to fairness versus gamesmanship, right? Yeah, I can see where you're coming from. Because in a points league, you know, a goal is worth more than anything else. But if you're counting by categories, if I win, say, penalty minutes and you win goals, then it's 1-1. And we know which category is more valuable in real life terms. So a way to control for that is to make sure that you really pick the best categories and we'll get into that later. But you want 
every category to somehow reflect true value from a player and true contribution to their team's success. So what's your preference between points and categories? Well, I participated in both kinds of those leagues last year, and I have to say they were both fun for their own reason. I think... It's really hard, actually, for me to choose a favorite. I think I'd go categories just because there is a bit more flexibility in ways to win, whereas in the points league, it's like, again, coming out of the draft, a lot is already decided. And then if you're looking at free agents, everybody in the league is looking at the exact same guys because everybody has the exact same value to every team based on the weighted points. And in trades, too, everybody values players the same way, so it's really hard to swing a deal. In a categories league, there's a bit more wiggle room there. If you're really strong in goals and another team is really strong in assists and you're each strong in each other's respective weakness, maybe there's a deal to be worked out there and maybe you're watching different players on the waiver wire as well, watch listing different guys who are good in different categories, which kind of makes the free agent pool quite a bit deeper when you're not just looking at the same five guys as everybody else. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. You brought that up to me somewhat recently when we were deciding what we're going to do for our Keeping Carlson League. And I feel like, yeah, with points, it's like, why would I ever want the guy who gets less points over the guy that gets more points? I guess one reason could be position eligibility, which we'll get to. But in general, you just want the more points guys. And yeah, with categories, it leads to so much more nuance of figuring out what do you need for your team? And maybe that's different than what other people need. And it's really nice when you're deciding who you want to try to target in trades, you look at who's weak and what, who needs what, and you can figure things out. So okay, we're going with categories if we have to pick something, but definitely it's not like the head-to-head versus rotisserie discussion where we were like, for sure, we like head-to-head. Here, it's like, we like categories, but points is also still pretty good. Yeah, points is still really good. And again, I feel like you might accept points as the more fair sort of way to compete because you can't sort of game the system and really win just on strategy alone. Points, everybody's playing by the exact same rules and needs the exact same things to win. And you'll be a bit better rewarded for your drafting in a points league than you might in a category league. Right. Okay. And so you brought up free agents and trades. Let's get into all of that now. So the next thing I think we need to talk about is what's going on during the week. So first of all, we broke down how we're going to split up the season. And so it's going to be different weeks. We're going to also have a playoffs. Let's get to that next. But week to week during your matchup, we've talked about you're going to have free agents. So free agents are just the players who aren't owned by any teams. They're all available in pretty much any fantasy platform, and you could at any time drop a player from your roster, pick up another guy, but then you have to make some decisions when you're planning your pool of what the rules will be around that. So one important decision is, are there going to be limits? Are you going to let someone just make unlimited moves? He could have 500 moves by then. There was a guy that we announced that won his pool. I think that he told us he had 500 moves, which was really crazy. And I think it's really important when you're designing your league to put a limit on that or at least have that discussion, because it depends what kind of league you're going to have. Where can people just do anything or do they have to conserve their moves and only drop and pick up players when they think it's really necessary because they're capped at some point? Without limits, it can be a kind of an ad drop race all season long. Like, you know, whoever's playing the next day is the most sought after free agent. And so many teams are going to want to go for that guy or players from that team. And you can just have players rolling on your roster all season long without much penalty, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I think there is something to be said for going with the team that you drafted and going hard with them and tinkering as you go to make the right moves and making them when you need them, but not to an extent that you can just make moves willy-nilly without having to think too much about it. So 
I'm a proponent of both season move caps and weekly move caps. So season move caps, you have, say, I don't know, 40 to 60 moves for the season, and that's it. Once you hit that limit, you cannot make another move, and that just makes them more valuable. You really have to think about whether this is worth burning a roster move for. If you want to do something on a wing and a prayer, by all means do it but you're going to have to pay a small price at the same time. Also, if you're working really hard to win one matchup or to fix one aspect of your team, you only get so many tries to do it. And that's what a season cap sort of does. And that's why I like the season move cap. I like weekly move caps because otherwise, and this happened to me, I learned the hard way, People are just rolling, especially in a categories league. It's just like, okay, I'm going to pick the highest shots on goal guy tonight. And then you drop him the next day and pick up the guy who has the highest shots on goal rate who's playing the next night and so on and so on and so on all week. And it's like just a race between you and your opponent to get to the free agent pool first. I like a league that gives you about four or five roster moves a week. So you really do have to think about, is this going to be worth it? Do you want to save up so that you have three moves to make on a Sunday to catch up? Or are you going to spread them out over the course of the week? It's another aspect of strategy rather than just letting the moves be infinite and you can do whatever you want anytime. Yeah, so I've participated in lots of pools where there was a season limit. And I find that actually very stressful because, you know, I'm always thinking, should I make this move or not? But like, oh, I'm starting to run out. Like you could ask me at any point in the season and I'll tell you exactly how many moves I've made and how many I have left. I was in a pool last year for the first time that didn't have a season limit. It was like unlimited moves for the season, but only three moves per matchup. And that was, I think I really liked that, actually. I think I would be a proponent of that going forward. So basically, every week you reset. You don't have to worry about if you used up too many moves before. But in a given week, you could only make a maximum number of moves for that week. And then it also makes the week kind of exciting in terms of you have to strategize. Okay, so I've got these players that are playing Monday and Tuesday. Then they don't play again until Saturday, so maybe I'll drop one of them on Wednesday, and then I'll pick up this guy who's playing Thursday and Friday. It's like fun to sort of plan out your week for the moves. But definitely I agree with you, Brian, that there should be a cap. I think I like weekly move caps over season move caps if you're only going to pick one. But like you said, you could also just have both. And then one important aspect about these ad drops is when you drop someone, that might be a player that multiple teams in the league might be interested in getting. And it's kind of unfair to just let anyone take that guy right away because maybe it just happens to be that, like, I was awake when I noticed that Brian dropped this player so I could snag him and maybe you would think it's more fair for everyone in the league to have the opportunity to take that player. And that's why they have waivers and most of the fantasy hockey platforms implement some form of waivers where there's a period in which people can bid to get the player that's dropped. And I guess the two most popular ways to do this, Brian, are either a priority list or some sort of budget where you bid a certain amount of money. So Brian, what do you think about the different waivers options? Well, waiver priority is usually determined after the draft, and it goes in reverse order of the draft. So if you're in a 12-team league and you drafted first, you have 12th priority for the waiver wire, and if you drafted 12th, you have first, and everybody in between gets their respective number two. So the later you drafted, the higher you are on the waiver priority list. And with a budget, well, you have a certain amount of money to spend on waiver acquisitions over the course of the year, say $100. And then you can bid on players as they become available, and the highest bidder gets the player added to their team. So if I bid $20 on a player, and you bid $5, Elon, then no matter what, 
I'm still going to have to pay my $20, even though it would have only taken a $6 bid to get that player. So there is a little strategy in there. The thing with waiver priority is it is a little random. And my general strategy with it is actually to just sit on a high priority all season long until I find someone that's worthwhile And I'll really think hard about it before I make that move. And what that does is it lets the people who are low on the waiver priority list, who are like 10th, 11th, 12th priority, they actually get to make a lot more moves with the waiver players because it costs nothing to them and their priority to just go for a player who's on waivers. They might reset back to 12 or stay at 12. It's no big deal to them. I once hung out with, like, a number one waiver priority all season long, and I ended up with Marion Gabrick going into the playoffs, and I won the league because of it. So I think with waiver priority, you've either got everybody active and it's constantly shifting, but what I've seen more often is that there's sort of two poles of activity. You've got the people sitting on high priority towards the top of the list, and you've got people being super active towards the bottom of the list. Yes, I think it's really interesting because I think objectively, you'd have to say the budget is more fair, right? Because everyone gets to bid what they want. And it's kind of like whoever wanted the guy the most gets the guy. But you bring up how fun waiver priority is because it's such an interesting decision of whether should I use my priority or not. And by the way, just to quickly explain, with priority, how it works is everyone kind of says if they want the player or not. And then whoever had the highest priority of all the people who bid gets the player. And then that person goes to the back of the line for the next time. So... I think it's really fun to be near the top and have to decide, oh, do I blow my priority on this guy or do I let another guy take? And the guys at the bottom, it's kind of fun being at the bottom of the priority list because you feel so free that you could just try to get any player that becomes available that you're interested in. If you don't get him, eh, no big deal. If you do get him, that's great. At the top, it's so such a hand-wringing thing. But hey, if you could wait and get a guy like Marion Gabrick, the problem is you don't know if Gabrick's going to show up or not. So I feel like this maybe comes down to another fairness versus gamesmanship thing. Though obviously there is a lot of gamesmanship in terms of determining how much you want to bid on your waiver priority. I don't know if there's really like that big of a difference in terms of how fun your pool's going to be, but it's an interesting decision that you need to make. Yeah, I think the budget is actually the best way to go. I think it gives you the gamesmanship of waiver priority with a little bit more flexibility that you can be in on any player you want. You're not screwed because you're say ninth or 10th in waiver priority. You can get like four players off waivers in a row if you want them and you're willing to spend enough And instead of, you know, deciding whether you want to use your waiver priority, you're deciding whether you want to use your budget and strategize if you're going to save that, say, $100 for the whole season, or if you're ready to make small bids on several players and risk, you know, being outbid by $1. I know there are a lot of people in those leagues who like to stay at their $100 while other people make $1 and $2 bids. The second, Elon, that you make a $1 bid on a player and you go down to $99, I essentially have waiver priority over you. I have the upper hand and that can be powerful or it can be a little handicapping the same way as waiver priority, but I like the budget a little bit more because you can do pretty much anything, anytime. And if you can't, it's your own fault for blowing your budget or using it in the wrong way. It has nothing to do with, you know, sort of an arbitrarily assigned priority order from after the draft. Yeah, well, Brian, I know specifically with you that if I have $99 and you have 100 I'm not too worried about you essentially having higher priority than me because I don't think you would ever spend $100 of your waiver budget on a player. (laughs) But that's just from knowing you. That's another fun thing about being in a pool. You get to know people and kind of like poker. You could start to learn about what you think other players are going to do based on what they've done in the past. I love fantasy hockey. I can't wait for the season to start. But okay, let's keep this episode going. Hopefully this has been interesting so far. Maybe a lot of people already know all of this, but... 
I hope they're still finding it to be a fun discussion and to hear our specific opinions about these different decisions. And a big thing that actually we've mentioned a bunch, but we haven't gotten into is the draft itself. At the start of the pool, we need to each fill up our rosters to get things going. And there's a big debate. We've been having this debate on the patron Facebook group now for a while since we've been discussing what we want to do for our Keeping Carlson League. But the two big options are you have a draft, just like in the NHL, or do you go with the auction, which is such a scary thing for some people, but I guess pretty neat. Just to quickly explain before I go to Brian for his opinions, a draft, you know, you take turns picking players, pretty straightforward. You could either do a regular draft like the NHL where you go 1 to 12, 1 to 12, 1 to 12, and that's less fair than doing what we call a snake draft where you go 1 to 12 and 12 to 1, then 1 to 12 and 12 to 1. So everyone takes turns being near the top or the bottom of a particular draft round. So you could do that. And then the auction draft is where everyone has a certain amount of money, kind of like what we just said with the waivers. And each player, one at a time, will come up for bid. And everyone's going to just buy their roster based on who they want the most. And Brian, I know you just did an auction draft for your first time last season and you loved it, right? I loved it. I think it is the fairest way to draft, but I guess... You know, the counterpoint would be, well, we've talked about some other fair options like Roto or points head to head that might not necessarily be the most fun options. But here is where I diverge. I think the auction draft was also a lot of fun. It's like a really dynamic experience. You don't have to worry about a player falling to you. You can go out and get that player at any time. So how an auction draft works is everybody takes turns nominating a player one at a time. So the person who's up first, they nominate, say, Alex Ovechkin, and they put in an opening bid, and then it just keeps getting bid up and bid up and bid up until nobody bids anymore, and then he goes to the highest bidder. But the second person might nominate, like, Alex Galchenyuk. And then early on in the draft, you have to figure out, okay, how much of my budget am I going to spend on Alex Galchenyuk? And it could go either way. You could have a lot of people just ready to make their initial splash and go for a superstar, and you could get him really cheap, or people might bid him up and he might get overvalued earlier in the draft compared to how much he would have sold for later in the draft. So players are nominated one at a time. It doesn't matter how good they are or where they'd normally be drafted. It's a whole other dimension of strategy, who you're going to nominate and how prepared you're going to be to bid on whichever guy is nominated. And that doesn't exist in a snake draft. Now, a snake draft is easy. Anybody can join in and understand. And, you know, you might not kick yourself as much for making mistakes as you would in an auction draft. I feel like we could do a whole episode, actually, about drafting strategies, both for auction drafts or snake drafts. I've personally never done an auction draft, so I have some basic questions for you, if you don't mind, really quickly. Like, what happens if you've spent all your money, but you haven't filled your roster yet? How do you get your remaining players? It's just players that are put up for bid and no one bids on? Yeah, well, you're usually forced to keep $1 for each open roster spot that you have, and that $1 will go towards whatever player you nominate when it's your turn. So if you really mess yourself over and say you've drafted 10 of 15 players and you're down to your last $5, you can nominate a guy towards the end of the draft, but somebody can still outbid you for $2, and then you'll have to wait for your turn to nominate to come around again. And then as everybody fills up their rosters, they exit the draft. They're not a part of it. So essentially, you're pretty much picking free agents at the end. If you're down to having $1 per player, you have to wait until everybody else is out or everybody else also has $1 per player remaining. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. 
I feel like it's scary for the Keeping Carlson pool. We'll, we'll explain what we decided in the end. But I was scared because I feel like if someone hasn't done an auction draft before, maybe it's a bit intimidating. And they're like, oh, I don't know if I want to compete in that because what if I don't know what I'm doing and I just screw myself and I have a horrible season with a snake draft. You know, we've all done it. Anyone who's played in a pool has probably done a draft. And I don't want to sell it short, right? There is a lot of fun strategy involved in doing an actual draft. There's all that we talk about, about tiering. Like last year when we did a whole episode about draft strategies, that was for snake draft strategies. And it's interesting when you decide who to pick at a given time, it's that you see how many of these guys are still available that are in a particular tier. And then you could decide if you want to take someone like a forward, or maybe it's time to take a goalie because the good goalies are running out while there's still lots of forwards that you would be happy with. Right. So it's sort of easier to prepare for a snake draft. And a snake draft also allows for the possibility for you to get a sleeper. The concept of sleepers in an auction draft sort of takes a bit of a tumble. In a snake draft, you can quietly wait and hope for that guy to still be around for your next turn. And you can make that judgment call, you know, if you're going to pick the guy that you think more people are going to want and hold off on your secret little pick that's under the radar. But in an auction draft, you're going to have to nominate that person if you want to pick them. And you're going to have to make everybody aware that you think it's someone having on your team. Now, of course, you could also be bluffing. You could nominate somebody you have no interest in getting, but you want the other teams in your league to spend money on that guy so that you have a bit more of a budget advantage over them. But there is no true way to stay under the radar and pick that sleeper player as you can in a snake draft. Yeah, it's all very interesting. Like I said, we could probably do a whole episode discussing the benefits of one or the other and also just the strategies of each one. Maybe we will do a draft strategy episode. We did one last summer, so I wonder if we'll want to refresh that at some point. You can definitely check that out in our archives, keepingcarlson.com, if you want to find that episode. But okay, we got to move on. One big thing we still haven't talked about is the playoffs. So going back to our discussion about if you're going to have a head-to-head league, and regardless of whether it's with categories or points, at some point you're going to be building up a standings. And the fun thing about fantasy hockey is what we do is we make playoffs while the actual NHL is still in their regular season. So let's say... With three weeks to go, you take your top eight teams, and then you have one versus eight, two versus seven, you know, and you break it down into a little tournament where the matchups actually determine if you're going to move on or be eliminated, and then that's how we determine the ultimate champion at the end of the season. That's actually maybe a point for or against doing head-to-head versus a more cumulative thing, because maybe it's not so fair to have everything resting on a single matchup at the end of the season. But assuming you've decided to go with head-to-head, there are some decisions you have to make about how you want to do the playoffs. And one is maybe how long each matchup should go. During the season, usually we have one-week matchups. Some people in some leagues do two-week matchups for the playoffs. Brian, what do you prefer? What would you want to do if you're designing your own pool? Well, we talk about sample sizes a lot and how anything can happen in a small sample size. And that could be a pro or a con to a one-week playoff matchup. I think a two-week playoff matchup is the fairest way to go. You don't want the top-ranked team losing to the worst team in the league, say because they have Sidney Crosby and the Penguins only play twice that week. That's not a really good way to go out. Having a two-week matchup lets you have a more even distribution of games played and helps balance out, you know, any one or two game anomalies that might happen, like, say, Lunkvist letting in five goals or something. You don't want to lose your save percentage category just from one bad game because there's so few in the week overall. 
Yeah, or like Brian Gionta gets a hat trick, although he was really hot towards the end of the season last year, and that wouldn't have been terribly unfair because he was doing it for a couple months, but that's not what we're talking about. I think I've already pretty clearly stated my reasons for having two-week playoff matchups. Elon, would you agree? Well, okay, I do agree with you, but like any of these decisions, there are trade-offs. And I think the one downside of having longer playoff matchups is that it's longer playoffs overall, which means a shorter regular season, which means the teams that don't make the playoffs, they have more downtime at the end of the year. So if you want to have more involvement in your pool, it's more fun to have the regular season go as long as possible so everyone could be in meaningful matchups. So it is a bit of a bummer if, let's say, you're going to have eight teams make the playoffs and two-week playoff matchups. That's six weeks where if you didn't make the top eight, you're basically done, even though there's so much hockey left to be played. But that's a decision you have to make of whether you want your league to be catered more towards fairness for the teams at the top or balance for everyone to be able to play as much as possible all throughout. The other big decision is whether or not to count that last week. And we talked about that a lot last year because so many players were sitting in the last week of the NHL season. So do you really want your fantasy finals, the determination of who's going to be the winner of your pool? For the most part, people don't like to play that last week of the season. They want things to go to the second last week of the year. And that's when the fantasy season ends. Of course, again, the trade-off is one less week of hockey. People get knocked out one week earlier. But Brian, I think we're both pro not counting the last week. Yeah, it's a really tough one because it does add just another week of inactivity for the teams that didn't make the playoffs because you have to move them up a week to avoid using that last week, which I think is pretty fair for the teams that have worked really hard all season to be in contention and they're there now. You don't want their playoff hopes to be shattered because a team that is really clearly in the playoffs wants to rest a couple of their stars going into it and their opponent has, you know, a bunch of bubble teams or teams at the bottom of the NHL standings who have spoiler roles or playoff spots to play for and are still going all out, maybe against somewhat disengaged opponents. So it sounds like then what we've come down to is we want to have two-week playoff matchups and not include the last week. So theoretically, you may start your playoffs like seven weeks before the end of the NHL regular season. Of course, you could also just have four teams make the playoffs and then... You know, you only need to have two playoff rounds. So that's a decision you may want to make if you want to keep people engaged longer. Well, if you're having eight teams in the playoffs, then it's likely you've got to have one week matchup. So it's up to you if you want more teams involved in more luck-based matchups versus fewer teams involved in more merit-based matchups. Although it could go either way. I think I prefer having one week matchups for eight teams just for the pure fun of it, like, it can get a little wild, and it can be super frustrating, especially if, like, a big money prize is on the line. But if it's just for fun, I think that's a really exciting way to do it. So you're saying that if there's nothing at stake, it's more fun to just have eight teams make the playoffs and have one-week matchups and make it a lot of fun. But if you want to make it most fair, maybe have four teams make the playoffs and have two-week matchups. All right. Yeah, especially if there's, like, a prize or a real reason to win first place, then you probably should do it the fairer way. I guess I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here. I thought the two-week answer was the obvious one, but there is still some reason to go for the 
larger, more inclusive option for the playoffs. Okay, and let's move on to the next major aspect of a lot of hockey pools. It's the namesake of our podcast, Keeping Carlson. What that's referring to is keepers. And we talk about that a lot on the podcast, right? We're like, is this guy worth taking now because you want to maybe keep him from year to year? The whole idea in a keeper pool is that once you've drafted your team in the first year, there's a mechanism where you get to keep certain players on your roster that won't be available for next year's draft and you'll just have them automatically on your team and you're just going to draft to fill out the rest of your roster. There's lots of decisions to be made if you're going to want to have a keeper pool, but right off the bat, Brian, just keeper versus not, what would you say are the pros and cons and which do you prefer? Well, a keeper league is really fun because you get to decide at the draft who you're going to build your franchise around. And there's a lot of different ways to do a keeper league from keep two or keep four to keep a whole roster to having like a whole organization set up where you have a farm system and everything. So it depends on exactly which format you go for. But in all of them, the common thread is that you are making a decision for your team in the draft that's going to impact them for years to come. And it's like a constant management thing. You have to keep an eye on how old your players are getting, on how good the new crop of prospects are, what other teams are doing with their keepers and who might be available going into the draft next season. There's a lot to work with there, whereas in a redraft league, it's start from scratch every year, and there's something to that, right? It's an easier entry point for anybody to come into the league. It's easier to expand your league or change the rules. It gives you a lot more flexibility because people will choose their keepers assuming that it's going to be the same rules for a while. You know, I'm going to pick somebody who fits really well under my league scoring system, but if my league scoring system changes... I might be out of luck. So what having a non-keeper league does is it lets there be a little more flexibility in the rules from year to year and a little more opportunity for new teams to join in and teams to drop out without damaging the league too much. Right, yeah. So I think it's pretty straightforward in terms of the benefit of not doing a keeper league. You just sort of start fresh every year. You could have a totally different pool. You could have auction draft one year snake draft the next year, one year you could use points, one year you could use categories, you could do whatever you want. Keeper League, like you say, you're a bit more fixed. Another downside of a Keeper League, which a lot of people bring up, is that, let's say, a player like Crosby, once someone drafts Crosby, that's kind of it. No one else is going to get the option to own Crosby for pretty much his entire career. Maybe he'll slow down a little bit at the end and he'll not be a Keeper anymore, but that is probably still quite a few years away and maybe it's a bummer for some people that don't get to ever say they're keeping Carlson unless they drafted him in the first draft so that's a downside but there are ways to work around that some leagues that I've seen have complicated ways of managing their keepers like they'll escalate where maybe you have to pay a certain amount to keep each player or maybe each player is only eligible to be kept for a maximum of three or four years and then you have to drop them back into the draft there's lots of things you could do like that to avoid that problem of just having a guy being gone for his whole career And actually, it's very interesting on our Facebook group. Sometimes we get questions from people or on Twitter or whatever asking for fantasy advice. And then when they explain their pool rules, it seems so complex and interesting in terms of like, who should I keep? I keep this guy, but then I won't be able to keep this guy because we have a rule that you can only keep this much of this. Oh, yeah. Another thing with keepers that's more standard is maybe you might have instead of just keep four of anything, you might have I'm in one league where it's like you get to keep one center, one left wing, one right wing, two defense and and one goalie. So it might be fixed like that. There's lots of decisions to make if you want to make a keeper pool, but it is a lot of fun and it keeps the summer interesting because you could think about all summer who you want to keep. One thing that a keeper league enables you to do, though, is to include draft picks in any trades that happen. So it adds a bit more strategy towards the end of the year. In a non-keeper league, there's no reason for teams at the bottom to be making trades, nor is it possible to really evaluate how fair those trades are if a team, you know, who's in last place 
trades a really great player for like four bit pieces with the team at the top of the league. You can't really figure out what each one is worth and whether that's an okay thing. Whereas if you have draft picks in the mix, there's a clear incentive for the last place team to do business and to stay active towards the end of the season and a clear price for the top teams to pay for those pieces that'll help put them over the top. And that sort of leads us into our next very contentious point of building a pool is how trading works. And the thing that inevitably comes up in many leagues is what happens when an unfair trade goes down or when a trade goes down that some people think is not fair. Yeah, it's just like when you play Settlers of Catan. You get so frustrated that two people have made a trade that that you think has made your competitor better, and you just sat there and had to watch. It's, it could be the most frustrating thing to see another team make a trade that, say, if you're in second place, it puts the first place team over the top. What can you do about it? So most leagues have some form of a veto rule, and it usually comes from like a rote count. Like, you know, if there's 12 teams in the league, a veto needs eight votes, or it can be a percentage, and usually it's done anonymously, which I think is the biggest issue that a lot of people have with vetoes, especially if you're the one doing the trading, and suddenly your trade is vetoed, and you don't know by who, and you don't know why, it can be really annoying, especially when you do think, oh man, this is just the rest of the owners in the league preventing me from getting ahead and not letting me make a deal, maybe because they just didn't know that this player was available, or they could have made the same deal with their pieces, and I was just the one to do it first. So, you know, there's a lot of conflict of interest happening when veto votes go on, and it's really good to try and figure out if you're just setting up your pool, a really good way to control for that and prepare for those disagreements. Yeah, I think that if you're going to go with veto, you need to come up with a really clear guideline for what you think constitutes a vetoable trade. You know, like, it can't be that people are allowed to just veto because they didn't like it, you know, like you said, or like like in my example. Like, I feel like you need to explain to, to the people in your pool and try to come up with a guidelines where it's like, we're only going to veto trades that we think are collusion. And that's like the big problem, right? The reason why you need to have some sort of oversight on trades, because the person in last place could just be like, hey, how about I'll just trade you all my good players? And then if you win, we'll share the money. And that's totally unfair for everyone else. And that is a reason to veto a trade. And I think that is one of the only reasons really you should veto a trade. I guess the other one would be like gross incompetence. Like if someone's trade is like he didn't mean to give the game away to someone else, but he basically did because it was such a horrible trade. You know, if, if someone trades away Sidney Crosby for Ryan Kessler and you're not in a league where somehow Ryan Kessler's the top scoring, which we've seen some of our patrons are in leagues like that, where Kessler's like the top guy, I guess a high waiting for hits and, and face-off wins. But anyway, that's besides the point. But yeah, I think that the only reasons to veto should be either collusion or gross incompetence. But that's tough to measure because, you know, what's the difference between gross incompetence and just someone making a dumb trade, which is what you want to allow because that's kind of the fun of it is trying to find people who are going to make a dumb trade and help you. All good points, Elon. And figuring out exactly how to activate the veto is also difficult because if you need a percentage or a certain number of players to be in on it to say, I think that this trade is unfair for any of the reasons that you've previously established that are legitimate for a trade being unfair... If you have a 12-team league and it's towards, like, the end of the season, it's a trade deadline, say it's a redraft league, and you've had, like, four players drop out and stop paying attention, and the veto window is only 24 hours or 48 hours, then you've got a problem. If you need half your league to veto it or a certain number of people, which is why, Elon, I think veto power 
best rests in the hands of a very trusted commissioner, somebody who you can really count on to make a fair decision and be able to explain themselves. And maybe in this situation, you could also have like a deputy commissioner. If there is going to be a conflict of interest with the commissioner's team from this trade, you can have somebody maybe on the other side of the standings who's rebuilding their team at the moment who can help weigh in and make sure that it's a fair process. The other thing that I think is really important in the veto process is that you should have to put forth a reason. So say you've got this setup where the commissioner has the ultimate power to veto, you should say, commissioner, I think that this trade is unfair because, and then lay out your reasons. Clicking a button to veto a trade and being done with it, I don't think is a good way to go about it. You should have to start a conversation, maybe even tell your league, like post on the league message board that you are vetoing the trade because, and then take it from there. Transparency and explanation, I think can really help a fair veto process move forward. Yeah, definitely. It's like, this is the thing that tears apart pools, I think, the most. Like, obviously, there's just attrition and people not being interested anymore. Maybe that's the number one cause of pools falling apart. But I know that a lot of people just get so frustrated because a bad trade happens, there's some bad blood, people are arguing that you vetoed my trade for bad reasons, and that could lead to a lot of contention in your pool, which you don't want, because it's all for fun. You want to have trash talk, you want to, you know, have a lot of fun making fun of people, but in a way where everyone is having fun and not just trying to screw each other over in a way that hurts their feelings or makes them feel bad. So I really agree with you, Brian, that if you can have a commissioner that everyone trusts to make the decision, that makes everything a lot easier. Of course, the problem is you have to make sure this person actually is trustworthy. For the Keeping Carlson patron pool, you and I will be joint commissioners, and I think it's going to be great because if I make a trade, you'll be able to weigh in, I guess. And if you make a trade, I'll be able to weigh in. And otherwise, you and I will just make the decision based on other people's trades. So hopefully there won't be too much bad blood. Also, I just wanted to bring up quickly what you said way back about trading draft picks. Is it possible, do you think, to do a keeper league without having draft pick trades? Because I actually find it very frustrating. And maybe it's just me not being great at it. And so maybe it's just frustrating because I don't know what to do. But I found last season, I was competing for the championship. And then other people that were up there with me, they started trading draft picks away to get better players to help them in their playoff run. And then I felt almost like I was in an arms race, where at that point, basically, I'm for sure going to lose unless I do the same thing in order to keep up. Next thing you know, I traded a bunch of picks for players that I wouldn't have done originally. And then if you don't win, you're kind of out of luck. I guess that's how the actual NHL goes. So I guess you can say that it should be like that but I find it actually very frustrating I feel like even in a keeper league I'd prefer not to trade draft picks but I'm curious to know if that's just me being a weak player and wanting to mask my weakness or do you think that's a reasonable way to go I think your gripe is reasonable like you said you know it is the way the NHL goes but for doing it in the NHL I feel like the ramifications are different than they are in a fantasy league and I think what happens a lot is that people choose to yo-yo so if you're at the top of the league you load up on all the best players you trade away all your draft picks for good players from the lower teams and then the next season you build a pretty poor team out of the draft picks that you have but then you trade away your best players to get draft picks for the following year and then you stack your team using those draft picks and end up at the top and it just keeps repeating and you go up and down up and down every year Yeah, you make a good point. And the thing is, if you're in a keeper league where it's only like keep four or keep five, then you're already not like the NHL. 
And there really is no incentive to... If you're not going to make the playoffs and you have your sixth best player and it's only a keep five, why not trade that guy for a draft pick? But that's not the case in the NHL where obviously they're keeping every player year to year. So I think there is an argument to be made for unless you're in a complete dynasty league where you're going to hold on to your entire team going into next season, maybe there is a reason to say no trading draft picks. I think I would enjoy that more, but I'm curious to hear what the listeners think. So definitely tweeted us with your opinion on that or any of the other categories we've discussed. And actually, Brian, I think that pretty much covers the basics of how to design a fantasy pool. I think that almost covers it. And if you think we've forgotten something, again, tweeted us at Keeping Carlson. One thing, Elon, that we can rewind a little bit and go back to, we talked about categories, but we never talked about specifically what categories we think are the best to have in the league and how to balance it out between skaters and goalies. Do you have any initial thoughts that you'd like to share on what categories you like to have in your pool? Oh, man. Yeah, that's a big one. I can't believe we forgot that. Okay, yeah, and that's for categories. Or if you're going to do points-based, then there's the decision of how you want to weight everything. And actually, I think that's actually one of the big disadvantages of doing points versus categories that we didn't bring up, is that if you don't weigh things kind of correctly, your pool could end up getting really wonky. And like I said, like a guy like Ryan Kessler could be the number one ranked player in your league, which is what you don't want. You want the top players to be the top ranked. So that's really challenging. So I think we should talk about both of those things. In terms of categories, I personally prefer more offensive categories. It depends what kind of pool you want to have, right? Do you want it to be a pool where you're rewarding a whole bunch of things like plus minus and hits and penalty minutes and blocks? You know, that's very different than if you're going to go offensively. I personally prefer to have some variation, but definitely no penalty minutes Plus minus kind of bothers me. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts. And then maybe we could each just weigh in on what we think the perfect set of categories may be for us. And it's definitely a personal decision. Yeah, a couple guiding principles for me are you should be rewarded for having players that reward their team that are making positive contributions to their team, mostly based on skill and not so much luck. That's one guiding principle for me. The other is to have like a proportional representation in the categories relative to your roster. So say you have three goalie spots on your roster. Those three goalie spots on say a 15 person roster should not account for 40 or 50% of your categories. So having a nice balance between skaters and goalies that looks how it should according to how many of each you have on your roster. I think that's an important balance to strike. Yeah, for sure. And I'd say if you're going categories, maybe, you know, the obvious ones are goals, assists. I really like shots, personally. I think it's really fun to keep track of. And shots is the kind of thing we actually talk about a lot on the podcast, because shooting percentage is a good way to determine if a player is being lucky or not. And also Corsi is dependent a lot on shots or more like shot attempts. So that would be really nuanced if your pool tracked shot attempts, which included like missed shots and block shots. But I really enjoy shots on goal as a category. Also power play points or special teams points is really fun. So you get a bonus. It's always such a great feeling when one of your players scores a goal on the power play and you've just notched a point for your goals category, your shots category, and your power play points category. One interesting category that I don't see very often, but that I have in one of my pools, which I think is fun, is defense points, where you have a whole category just for the total amount of points your defenseman scored during the week. And by points, I just mean goals and assists combined. And I think that's just a way that you can make your defense roster spots more valuable. I'm curious to know what you think about that one. Yeah, there should be a way to get adequate value out of your defenseman and having a dedicated category is a good idea to do that. Another way that I've seen this done and I've used in my own leagues is having a blocks 
category. Now, that's kind of a funny one to measure because teams that block more shots are generally worse because they have more shot attempts being directed against them. But the players who are blocking those shots are helping keep shots on goal away from their net, and they're probably seeing a lot of ice time for their team. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really nice way to just give defensemen more value. Obviously, someone like Carlson has value for getting points, but then you give extra value to the defensemen who maybe don't get so many points, but at least are giving you blocks. Another category that I think... I'm on the fence about, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts about, our saves for goalies. So I think wins is like an obvious one. Save percentage, goals against average is very common. Saves, I think, is interesting because it's almost like a goalie on a bad team is probably going to get more saves just because the team's going to let in so many more shots. So even if the goalie has a bad save percentage, he might still be really high in saves. Do you think that's a good category to have? What I think that category does is it balances out situations where you have a team that started a goalie once or twice, got like a ridiculously good like 930 save percentage, and then benches their goalies for the rest of the night. I think it incentivizes players to play their goalies as much as possible if they want to win as many categories as possible. Of course, the wins category helps that too, but even on a bad team, you can still win a category by collecting saves from your goalies. I see, I see. So in that case, if you wanted to have goalie saves, let's say we were going to have a league... I guess we do have a league coming up. So we want to, like you said, though, balance number of goalie categories versus number of skater categories. So I'd imagine you can't really have four goalie categories unless you have at least, what, like seven or eight skater categories to counterbalance against them? Yeah, I think you should probably try and keep at least 60% of your categories for your skaters, unless, you know, your pool is a really weird setup where you have a ton of goalies. So if you have four goalie categories, I feel like you should try and balance that out with at least six skater categories and that could include defensive points or blocks but if you're choosing say three or four goalie categories you can't go much higher in most pools so what would they be I think wins is a good one even though that is more of a team stat than a goalie stat but it is like the main thing in the NHL that teams are going for so you kind of want to get rewarded for getting the win I feel like right you draft a goalie from a good team you're rewarded for drafting a goalie from a good team which might cost you more than drafting a goalie from a bad team so I'm okay with that Save percentage is perhaps the most reflective statistic for a goalie's ability, so I like that for sure being included. Saves, I already made my case for. There's two we haven't gotten to yet, and those are shutouts and goals against average. And I'll start with goals against average. I'm not a huge fan of it because that too has been shown to be more of a team-controlled stat than a goalie-controlled stat. Right, yeah, and since you already have wins there, maybe you don't need to also have goals against average. I think I agree with you. Definitely if I had to pick between save percentage and goals against average, I'd rather save percentage because that's more the goalie skill and not just like the goalie letting four goals, but it was on like 60 shots. That's a pretty decent game. Why should you be penalized in your goals against average for your goalie having a good game? Yeah, exactly. And then you've got shutouts, which like I'm on the fence about that. That's sort of like one where you generally tie every weekend with zero shutouts, but there are some goalies who get a few more shutouts than others. And, you know, it's a mix of skill and team situation because it is, you know, sort of a measure of goals against as well, which is team influenced. So 
I like it as sort of like a wild card category, but I don't like it in the sense that it can be lucky over the course from week to week. You know, you can't really plan or work towards a lot getting a shutout in a certain week or two weeks against a given opponent in a given week. Right, okay. And then in terms of if you're going to do a points league, maybe we won't get into what we think the weightings should be. But obviously, the you know you want to have goals worth more than assists, and then you sort of go down from there. And also, you want your goalies. I think like the key thing with the points league is like once you've come up with what you think is a good weighting for all of the different things you're going to give points for, rank the players, take a look at the list, and make sure nothing looks wonky. Like You don't want every single goalie to be double as much as the top skaters. And you don't want weird players that are clearly not the best players in the NHL to be at the top. So that's kind of a thing where you could sort of have to, I think, almost do a trial and error type of activity until your weightings match up with what you think is reasonable. There are some samples available that you could go from. One of the uh, people in our patron group, Sam, linked to a good article on Fantasy Six Pack about, you know, categories versus points. And then they came down to preferring points and they gave actually a weighted point system that I think looks pretty good. So we'll link to that in our show notes for our episode, keepingcarlson.com. And maybe that's a good place to start if you have no idea what you want your weightings to be. Yeah, there's no one best way to do it, although a lot of pools have their own set way and it works for them. So like Elon said, find a way that works for you. Make sure if you are ranking players by your scoring system that you do have the best players in the league at the top. And it's not like some weird mishmash of like top sixers and bottom sixers or whatever. One more comment on categories, Elon, that we didn't really touch on. There's a few popular categories that I don't really like. For skaters, we already talked about goalies, and I just want to hit on them quickly. Plus minus is something that's still used in a lot of leagues, and I get it. I get why it's in there, but I feel like it's not so much skill-based. Especially not for the player himself. Yeah, You could say it's skill-based for a team. Like, the team that has more skill is going to generally be more plus, but... I agree with you that for a player who just happened to be on the ice when a goal scored, you might not have even contributed to that goal. You may not have been the cause of a goal being let in, so why should you be penalized for that? Right, you might have just hopped on the ice or hopped off the ice. And Elon, we lost our league on a minus, you know, like on an empty net goal or something. So it can just cause, I, I think, some unfairness and some unbalance in whether a player's true value is really being reflected in their fantasy value. Another one is hits which I think we've been over this on the show before, but hits are not recorded evenly across the NHL. They're recorded by each arena's individual scorekeeper. And I mean, of course you can control and say, well, hey, I want someone who plays for the Rangers because their scorekeeper, you know, gives them a lot of hits when they're at home. Or same with Ottawa, like Chris Neal is always way up there. And I think that is a function of how hits are being counted in Ottawa. But they also have been shown not to be a direct function in helping their team win. So a player who hits a lot, well, that means they don't have the puck every time they're throwing a hit, which is not a great thing. And it also just hasn't correlated strongly to giving your team an advantage in the game. So that's a couple reasons for me not to count hits. And finally, penalty minutes, if anything, these should be worth negative points in like a point weighting system. Penalty minutes are not something desirable, especially in today's NHL where fights, well, you know, are sort of being phased out. Nobody helps their team by taking a two minute minor and nobody really helps their team by punching another guy in the face a whole lot. So a reason why I don't think penalty minutes should be counted as a category or if it's counted in a weighted points league that it counts for negative points against your team. 
Well said, Brian. I think now I think we've covered it, or if we haven't, I think we're going to have to stop here. This might be one of our longer ever episodes. If this is your first episode of Keeping Carlson and you've made it all the way to the end, I'm sure you're a very rare breed. But uh, just so you know, most episodes are not like this, and we generally talk about actual player evaluations and fantasy pool strategy. This was just a nice overview. I think I enjoyed it anyways, discussing all the different things you have to consider when making a fantasy pool. I'm really curious to hear if you guys think this was good. So definitely tweet at us, at Keeping Carlson. Also, just in general, to let us know what you agree about or don't agree about. Before we end the episode, though, like we said, we are going to be making our own fantasy pool for the listeners of Keeping Carlson, or more specifically for the patrons of Keeping Carlson. So I just want to say, by the way, I know we're always plugging the patrons. We want people to sign up to be a patron of Keeping Carlson, and we do give rewards to our patrons who want to support the show financially for $5 a month or $1 a month in the summer. They could join our Facebook group. We do our monthly patron casts. And now a new reward is you're going to be able to participate in the fantasy pool. So if that's something you're interested in, Definitely, we'd love for you to sign up and you could try it out and you, know, you could cancel at any time. But just FYI, I don't think I say it enough. We really appreciate everyone who listens to the show. You're helping the show just by listening and, you know, commenting and interacting with us. The show's always going to be free. We're never going to require you to give us any money to get all of our fantasy advice that we give every week. And, you know, we're going to have our active Twitter account. That's not going away. So just FYI. But okay. Brian, let's talk about the Keeping Carlson fantasy, not yet named fantasy pool that we're dropping for this season that's going to be, I think, one very exciting thing. It's definitely been the main topic of conversation in our Facebook group for the last little while. Yeah, not just our Facebook group, but yours and mine personal conversations on GTalk or on the phone at all hours of the day. We've been on this for like, you know, the better part of the last two months since the season ended. This has been a project that we've been building towards. And so we're really excited to announce some key components of the format that we think will provide the most fun for everybody participating and make it the most competitive league that you can join for the 2015-16 season and beyond. Right, yeah. So before I get into it, Obviously, I'm not going to explain every little nitty gritty rule of the pool right now. We haven't even determined all of them yet. But the main idea is that we are going to make this pool for any patron of Keeping Carlson. We'll post a link in the patron group soon after this episode is released with a sign-up form where you could sign up and let us know some basic things about yourself. And also, we have some questions for the patrons that will help us design the last little things about the pool that we want to get your thoughts on. But the general idea is that we are going to be making not uh, just one pool, but a whole tiered kingdom. A whole ladder system. A ladder system, sure, that's the right way to put it. So we're going to have a ladder system where in the first season, it's going to be a redraft league. So this year, if you sign up, it's just going to be a league where there's no keepers or anything. The point of this season will A, be to win your pool. So let's say if we're having 14 team leagues and there's 42 people interested in signing up, we'll split you guys, you know, somewhat arbitrarily, somewhat based on what you say in the questionnaire into three different pools. And obviously the goal will be to win that pool that you're in, but also we're going to use the standings of those pools to set up our ladder system where the people who are at the top of their pools, they're going to go into the championship top rung of the ladder. And then people are going to be broken down into lower valued rungs, depending on how they finished. And then after that, every season will be obviously still to win your pool, but also to try to climb up the ladder. So the better you do in a season, the better chance you have to climb up to the next rung in the ladder. And if you do badly, you might fall to a lower rung. And the ultimate goal is obviously to win the top rung of the ladder pool, the Keeping Carlson ultimate championship rung of the ladder. And we'll have actual names for this, but that's the general idea. I hope I didn't ramble too much in explaining that. 
So Elon, this year it's not a keeper league. What about the next year? Are keepers going to be involved ever? Yeah, so like I said, the first season of this pool is going to be to determine the rungs in the ladder where everyone ranks or where every league ranks. And then after that, in following seasons, you're going to be in your league and each league will be a keeper league. You'll It'll be a shallow keeper league. Our plan is to have it like a keep four. And then if you move up or down, you lose your keepers because you're going into a new pool. And then the people who join the pool will have a dispersal draft to get access to those keepers. And we'll explain that more next summer because really there's no need now because for the first season, it's just going to be... You're going to be put into a league and your goal will be to end as high as possible to try to get into the top rung. But if you're in a bottom rung, no big deal. Just win your league the following year and climb your way up. That's going to be the fun of it. As far as actual formatting things, I don't want to get too deep into it, but our plan is we're going to do head-to-head categories. We actually had a discussion on our last Patreon cast, and that was one of the more contentious things of whether we should do categories or points. But we decided on categories. We'll let you know what our categories are. And for the playoffs, we have decided to have two-week matchups. So we're going to have the top four teams after the regular season battle it out over the last four weeks of the season in two separate two-week matchups. And for relegation, we're going to have the bottom four teams also having a two-week playoff to figure out who might be moving up, down, or staying where they are in the ladder. Right, yeah. And when you say the last four weeks, it's actually going to be over the last five weeks of the season because the last week of the season we're not going to count for the reasons we discussed earlier. Also, in terms of the draft itself, we had a lot of discussion, just like on this show, whether we should do an auction draft or whether we should do a snake draft. What we've landed on is a nice compromise in the middle. So when you sign up for the pool, on the sign-up form, you'll get to choose what you want to do, uh, auction draft or a snake draft, and hopefully we'll be able to just put you in the pool with people who want to do the same type of draft as you. That's for the first season. Moving forward, how we're going to do it is the championship tier, the top tier, that's going to be auction draft every season, and the other tiers will be snake draft. So you're not forced to do an auction draft if you don't want to, unless you want to be the ultimate champion, then you're going to have to do an auction, because auction is the most fair, and that's how we're going to use to determine the top tier moving forward for years to come. And of course, everything is subject to change based on our decisions. And we're going to be posting eventually a little document with all the main rules written out so you can understand them. And of course, you'll be a patron to participate in the league. So you can ask us in the group if you have any questions. You must be a $5 patron for the duration of the hockey season to participate in this patrons only fantasy league as well. Right. And keep in mind that while you have to be a patron and so you have to pay money to be in this pool, but that's like you're paying money to be a patron. It's more like you're supporting the show and you're getting all the other patron benefits. The actual leagues themselves, we're working with maybe finding some cool prizes that we'll be able to give. So we'll announce that also as we move forward. But the actual pool entry will be free. Hopefully just the motivation of trying to become the top ultimate Keeping Carlson patron and the winner of the top pool will be enough motivation. But we're also going to try to get some cool prizes from maybe like a sponsor or something. We're working on it, guys. There are so many fantasy fanatics in this pool. This is probably the most competitive pool that I will ever be in, and I think it's going to be a real feather in anyone's cap to win either their individual like tier and especially to be the champion. I think it's something really worth working towards. I know I want it pretty badly. Yeah, Brian and I will be participating, by the way. We probably won't be in the same league in season one, but I'm pretty sure we're going to be in the same league next season because we'll be in the championship league. But (laughs) we'll see how that goes. Okay, some important dates. So, Like I mentioned, we are going to post the sign-up form on the Patreon group. So if you are not a patron of Keeping Carlson, step one, if you want to participate, is go to keepingcarlson.com slash patron, sign up to be a patron of Keeping Carlson. Then you will get access to our Facebook group where we will post a sign-up form. So you'll just click that link, sign up to be in the pool, 
The deadline for all of this will be September 15th. So by September 15th, that gives you lots of time. You have a month and a half to decide what you want to do. By September 15th, you need to be a patron of Keeping Carlson and a $5 patron. So if you signed up to be a $1 patron over the summer, we of course really appreciate it. And you could stay as a $1 patron as long as you want. Obviously, we appreciate any support you give us. But in order to be a full-fledged patron during the regular season, it's $5 a month by September 15th. Then we will set up all of the pools and we'll get everything going. But we'll discuss a lot in the Facebook group as the date approaches. And we'll keep mentioning it on each episode of the podcast up until September 15th. But yeah, make sure to sign up by then. And then we're going to have our drafts. We're going to have a couple of dates possible for the draft. And when you sign up, you can put in what dates you're available for. And we'll obviously just be able to update that as the drafts approach. They're probably going to happen near the end of September, or beginning of October, right before the season starts. Brian, any more things I need to say about this? Or could we end this super long episode? No, I think that's good. If you're wondering, you can see the draft dates on the sign-up form, but they are tentatively set for Saturday, September 27th at noon Eastern and Saturday, October 4th at noon Eastern. So hopefully one of those two will work for you. You'll have an option to make your choice known on the sign-up form. But Elon, I think that's it. This has been maybe the longest episode ever. And I think we're definitely ready to wrap up. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'll edit it and we'll see if I can maybe cut it down a bit. You guys are listening to the edited version and not having to endure the like two hours that Brian and I have been recording this episode, but it's flown by. It's been so fun. And by the way, as far as the drafting dates goes, if in the worst case you can't make it to the draft, obviously in the sign-up forms, we'll see. If most people say they can't make either of the dates, we'll have to make other arrangements. But if you're just unlucky and can't make a draft, you know, you could just sign up for auto-draft, you know, in all of the fantasy platforms. Oh yeah, by the way, we haven't chosen which fantasy platform we're going to use yet. We're going to ask about that also in the sign-up form. You can let us know which one you prefer. But in all these platforms, you can just rank your players as best you can before the draft and then hope that you'll get a good team. And really, unless you have really bad luck, you could probably climb out of a hole and just do really well during the season in terms of free agents and stuff to make up for having to do an auto-draft. It's obviously more fun to be at the draft, but you can still participate even if you can't make the draft. But okay, Brian, we're going to end the episode. Thanks again to everyone who listened. At Keeping Carlson on Twitter, keepingcarlson.com to get the show notes for this episode or to find previous episodes. We'd always appreciate a five-star review on iTunes, keepingcarlson.com slash patron if you want to become a patron. And that's it. Brian, any credits for this week? Because I'm going to roll the outro music right now. No, actually, we are the only ones to credit, and our patrons, actually. We went over a lot of this information on the patron cast and got so much great feedback and insight from them there and on the Facebook group. So this show was researched with help from our patrons and supported by them. So thanks a lot. Yes, definitely. Thank you, patrons. Good job, Brian. And we'll be back at you guys with another regular Keeping Carlson episode in a couple of weeks. Talk to you then, Brian. Talk to you then, Elon. Until that time, keep on keeping Carlson. 